Hey everyone, welcome to Take a Second, a weekly Come Follow Me podcast meant to strengthen our personal connections with Jesus Christ, as well as deepen our appreciation for His role in our Heavenly Father's universal plan of salvation. I'm Brian Ricks, and Stuart Black is here with me. Thanks for joining us, and let's get into uh, let's get into this week's scripture block. Yep. All right. Now we're ready. To now go. we can get going. I'm still Brother Ricks. I'm still Brother Black. And today we're going to do Matthew three, Matthew four, Matthew four, Luke four, and five. And Luke five. Yep. Um, and we're going to talk about the temptations of Jesus. Yeah. Uh, or I guess the temptate Satan tempt. Were they Jesus's temptation? Do we do we own our own temptations? <laughs> I don't um, know about that. <laughs> Where so, do we start? Yeah. Let's start get Matthew started. Matthew or, or in Luke? Um. I don't care. Where do you want to start? Uh. I like Matthew. the Matthew account. Right, right. That's but there, that's there's just, that's the. Funny. I didn't know if you wanted to go with uh, um, Jesus's uh, experience in Nazareth at the synagogue first, um, or if you wanted to just go with the temptation. No, let's do, let's do the synagogue. You want to start there? Yeah, let's go. All there. right, okay, and then and then end with that. It's, it's not can... really in the order, but it's. I mean, it's okay. That's kind of the. I, I think as you're flipping some pages, I think that's one of the fun parts about come follow me, and uh, as I'm doing that with my family uh, each week. Um, we'll bounce around. We'll take like a piece of this and a piece of this, and sometimes we'll go through it like a little bit more sequentially as mm-hmm. it would be. And other times it's like we already these two already kind of connect. Let's let's jump yep. and do something else and do it a little bit differently. So I don't know if there's a single week where our family hits the whole "Come Follow Me." Like we usually identify one thing and kind of hone down in, in on that. And like with John one, it was John the Baptist. That was right. what. In our conversation for our family, we spent the whole time with John the Baptist and his message and his purposes, and yeah. we never even really touched on the Word, mm-hmm. even though that's what we spent most of the time with on our on podcast. On our podcast yep. list, yeah. Yeah. All right. You want to you want to Yeah, yeah. I just uh, what, what grabs your attention? Um, for, for me, uh, we're gonna. So this is Luke four. Uh, we'll start. Um, I guess sixteen or so. This is this is what it says. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. Uh, and I, I love just the basic part that Jesus went to his Sabbath meetings, mm-hmm. just like as he, as he was wont to do like that, just he, he wanted to do it. It was a part of who he was and it's how he spent his time. Uh, and I, I love this idea that, um, as you piece together a couple of the other gospels, you realize that Jesus moved around a little bit growing up. Mm-hmm. That, you know, he's born in Bethlehem, and then um, Joseph and Mary take him down to Egypt, and then on their way back, they're like, okay, should we go here, here? And he spends a, most of his growing up years, at least, in, mm-hmm. in Nazareth. Um, so he's very well known. This is where he would have had a lot of his friends growing up, and a lot of the neighbors, and everybody uh, knew him. And uh, I, I love that he reads Isaiah. And and that just to me just relates a bunch of things that uh, that Nephi says in the Book of Mormon that I love Isaiah and Jesus loves Isaiah mm-hmm. and guess what we should too. Yeah. And so uh, as as he gets into this part in verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He hath anointed me, and I love that we spent some time talking about Jesus Christ is Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Anointed One. He's been anointed to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. As just a, a teaching idea for a family or, or for a class, I, I think it's it, you can lead into this a bunch of different ways, but spend some time there in 18 and talk about the ways that Jesus has done that for you. And, and it gives a, an easy opportunity for people to bear testimony of, Jesus has healed my heart. I feel like he's delivered me out of out of 
captivity. He's helped me see perspective and see God's hand in my life that I wouldn't have if I if before. And I, I love that these things that Jesus does that they look huge. And as a lot of the Jews were looking for huge Messiah things, they realized that they missed out on a lot of these smaller blessings for them that were that would actually have been more meaningful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I so I just like the fact that when it's time to start his ministry, where's the first place he goes? Um, and the reason I like that is because that's not where I would have gone. I, when I got called to serve a mission, I went to the Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. Way easier to go to the Dominican Republic, <laughs> a land of strangers, people who I could say, I probably will never see you again. So I will, I'll bear my guts to you mm-hmm. because if I make a fool of myself or if you accept me or don't accept me, I'm going to leave in two years and I'm going to go back home. Uh, but it's with our families. That's where I, it's a little more difficult to share the gospel with our families. There's, there's a little more at stake. Um, I, I think I've mentioned, you know, growing up, we weren't always that active. And, uh, even after I got active, my dad wasn't necessarily, uh, the church going type. And I remember I was, um, I'm not sure I was working at Desert Book and I got the strangest impression to buy a set of scriptures for my dad. So I bought a set of these, I, I bought a, a, a Bible and a triple, um, and took him and just, and, and I still remember he was backing out and it was just, I don't know if it was as awkward for him as it was for me, but I'm like, I mean, it was just like, he was driving away and headed back to work after lunch. And I just was like, Hey, I got something for you. And I gave him scripture and I, and I remember driving away thinking, God, that was so like, <laughs> what a great gift. Yeah. yeah. Just awkward and weird. But now, I mean, and then, I don't know, a decade later, my dad, you know, ends up making some changes and going back to church and. And every once, and, and so when I go back to my dad's house, guess what set of scriptures are sitting on his table? And those are the ones that, if he's not reading digitally, he's reading those ones. But I just think there's not a more important group to teach to, and yet that's the group we hesitate to do the most. You know, it's, yes. I, that we that we hesitate to go. It's it's much easier to be a, a foreign missionary than it is to be a ward missionary. Yeah. And yet that's but Jesus starts there, and and so what helps? Going to be accepted. What helps like make that shift? For people, I, what makes just, it easier? Yeah, nothing. Just to, to say, There's I want to, I want to do there. And and so maybe that's a starting point, is to say like, listen, it's it's hard. Yeah. And and also the the end of the story is, he's not accepted. Yeah. He he leaves Nazareth. They want to throw him off the hill. Mm-hmm. Like this this experience here does not go like, and when I every time I share my testimony with my family or yep. with my friends, it's gonna go perfect. Yeah. It, it doesn't. And anybody who served a full-time mission understands that your percentage is not a hundred percent. It doesn't work like that. Yeah. But but take some confidence in, in in following this example of the Savior that that's not what it's about. His original intentions here are to help these people. He loves them. He cares about them. I just I've had similar thoughts and when I served my mission and you know I I wrote letters to close family members of mine when I was serving my mission like listen the gospel means everything to me I would love it if you like you catch that missionary zeal and power and stuff and even now as it's like as the years have gone by it's still a little bit harder to like I was thousands of miles away. It was yeah. easy to write a letter and be like, hey, go back to church. But now, like, when we have our interactions, it's a little bit more, uh, I, I tried to be guarded or something, and I realized I shouldn't. 
Mm -hmm. I, I love them, and that's why I want them to connect themselves to the Savior like what he's trying to do for them in Nazareth. Yeah, and I think the other thing, even his family doesn't accept him in the beginning, right? I mean, there's there's a couple verses throughout the scriptures that suggest that some of his siblings have a little struggle, have a little challenge yeah. accepting his identity and who he is. And, um, and we get that. As an older brother, I, it would have been easy. My dad has seen the very worst of me. Um, it would have been easy for him to be like, who are you? Like, why are you? Who are you to come and preach the gospel? And give me of, scriptures. Yeah, yes. You know, you who lose your top and blow your head and <laughs> scream and rant and rave. And um, I don't, you know, who knows how many golf club shafts my dad had to replace when I was learning how to play. But it would have been easy for him to discount me. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's hard to approach family, friends, because they've seen the worst of us. And, and so for us, sometimes it's easy to feel awkward approaching them with a perfect message when we're not perfect yeah uh and and just the but the savior does it and and part of it is i think it, this starts out of just what you said it's a it's a love i mm -hmm. why would you why would we be why would we be so much eager and willing to go share it with strangers and not share it with those that we that we care the most about right i i think it's so interesting too that you're talking about our intention, what's driving it, and, and they know us better. And yet the ironic thing is sometimes they don't really know us. They don't really, like, deep down, like, who you are. And, and 22 just screams this to me that they said, is not this Joseph's son? No, it's not. <laughs> it's actually not Joseph's son. And I, I thought that when we talked about uh, in John 1, when he's like, this is Jesus of Nazareth. He's like, is he good? Did he come out of Nazareth? And what you don't really realize is that Jesus is from Bethlehem, actually. Yeah. And then he was from Egypt, actually. Nazareth is way down the road. And and so that idea of you don't really know him. Mm -hmm. And and so this idea of you might think that you do or you might have these preconceived notions, but they didn't they didn't really understand him all that well. And uh, just going on in the story, he says, you know, you, you'll surely say this to me that we've heard of your miracles. Do them here for us. And in 24, he says, no prophets except in his own country. And then he uses two of my favorite examples because they're two of my favorite Old Testament people. In 25, he says, there was lots of widows when Elias, and this is Greek, so Elijah. Elijah. He says, there was lots of widows when Elijah sealed the heavens, but only the one from not Israel did he help. Mm -hmm. And then he uses Elisha. It says Elisus, but Elisha down in 27, he says, there's lots of lepers. But only one who was not Israel, an Israelite, that's the one that was cleansed. So where do you want to go with that? And then all of the people, did, that's the uproar, that he uses these two examples to say, they didn't do that, and you like them. What are you getting after me for? Mm -hmm. And that's when they just blow their top. And I, I love Jesus' way of teaching that he, he goes back to the scriptures. He uses the scriptures. He uses them as the, he says, those are types and shadows of me, so I'm going to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And, and that ends up being his, un, right, that's with the Pharisees, that's his biggest problem is he keeps connecting back to these Old Testament prophecies that they can't deny who he is. Yep. Uh, before Abraham was, I am. Mm -hmm. And we're John, you know, yeah. And, and th there's multiple of these experiences where they have identified, even in these chapters, in these Isaiah chapters, that, verses that he reads, they've pre-established the fact that that's the Messiah. Yes. So when Jesus then sits down, so verse 20, he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And so I, I'm not an expert in Jewish culture and what was happening, but it seems to me that at least what was 
accepted practice here is that you'd stand to read the scriptures yep. and then you'd finish and whoever was given the privilege of reading that day would then get to sit down and you'd give your commentary sitting and you can see kind of a, a, a cool symbolic while I stand I, I stand while I read the word of God yeah. this is this is non-negotiable and then I get to give my commentary when I sit down and that's my my opinion or my my interpretation of it and so he sits down and then verse 21 and began to say unto them this day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears well they've already decided that that Isaiah chapter is it's about Messiah. the Messiah yeah. so when he says this day is it proclaimed this day it's fulfilled that it's it's done it's happened he is in a, he is he is declared himself without any question the Messiah I'm the one Isaiah was talking about and that's and that's anytime he does that anytime he goes back to these Old Testament prophets I, I think they they saw the the Old Testament shadow of of the Messiah in Moses and in Elijah and in Elijah and in and, and in Isaiah's teachings and so when he ties himself to that, there's no way to interpret or wrestle your way out of the fact that Jesus just said he's the Christ. Yep. And, and that that idea then at, at the end of the story that they blow up, they hate this idea that he is saying, this is who I am. And, and later on, he's going to be accused of like, speak clearly to us. Mm -hmm. And he's like, this is as clear as it gets. Uh -huh. I, I, have, I have laid it out for you and you still didn't accept me. But he passes through the midst of them. I love that in 30 that it just this is kind of their last shot that they get uh, with him and, and I love that he just he can't be stopped in his ministry he can't be stopped in his work nothing gets in the way of, of the Savior uh, and and there's some parallels that that we can relate over to Matthew 4 about the temptations that Jesus is using the scriptures again and again and again in yeah. in his ministry in his difficulties in his good like in all of his teaching he ties back to the scriptures but I, I just kind of like that as the intro to to Matthew, if I did too, and I thoughts. and I because I think it knowing how much he's going to struggle to get followers through this pattern that he's going to do, and he's going to go from uh, Nazareth to Capernaum to Gal, and he's going to bounce around all of these Galilean little cities, and he's going to teach and preach, and and he's going to really struggle for every disciple, and he's going to go out and he's going to find you know it, we talked a little bit about him calling Peter and James and John in the in the la in Mark one, but. He's going to go out and he's going to find disciples one at a time mm -hmm. or one and, you know, Peter and James, come follow me. John and Andrew, come follow me. And and that knowing that that's the model he's going to follow makes one of the temptations a little bit. It makes it come makes it, I guess, for me, make a little more sense as to why it's a temptation. Yeah. Um, so but to begin with, Matthew four, verse one. Uh, and Jesus was led up of the spirit to be into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Uh, this might be a great... I don't know that we've talked about the Joseph Smith translation. Yeah, not a lot. Um, this chapter is one of those that the Joseph Smith translation makes some minor changes textually, but contextually they're, big, they're a yeah. big deal. And, but I think it's important to clarify what the Joseph Smith translation is and what it isn't. I've always been fascinated with all of the things that we attribute to Joseph Smith as a translation. Joseph Smith never translated anything. The Book of Mormon, he looked at seer stones. Um, the The... Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, usually we think of a translation as being one I, I'm reading another. one language yeah. and then I know the other language. So as he's doing the Joseph Smith translation, he's got an English King James Version, big family Bible that he sit back reading and, and various scribes throughout the process. But Joseph's reading it and as he's going along, he's making some changes as prompted by the Spirit. I think sometimes Latter-day Saints have this impression that 
the Joseph Smith translation is the correct version of the Bible. And I, I can't find anywhere where that's been said. Right. Um, as a prophet, Joseph Smith has the, what's the word, the prerogative? <laughs> he, he has the, the prerogative and the authority to say, thus saith the Lord. And to clarify, uh, for example, something that Paul said, uh, and, and to even tweak it so that it fits what, what Joseph's congregation needs now. And so I think we make a pretty serious mistake if we, if we make the assumption that Joseph Smith's translation is an accurate translation of the Greek. Because that's not what Joseph was shooting for. In fact, when Joseph starts the Joseph Smith translation, he doesn't know any Greek. He'll learn it later on. He'll start to learn it later yeah. on. In, in, but when he starts this in 1831, uh, I guess late 1830, he doesn't know Hebrew or Greek. Yeah. He's re- it, it, the Joseph Smith translation is an inspired interpretation for our dispensation. Mm-hmm. And it won't surprise me if some of the changes are more accurate. And it won't surprise me if some of the changes aren't even close, because that's not what Joseph's purpose was. Mm-hmm. So the, the first Joseph Smith translation in chapter four, uh, it says that the, Jesus was led up the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And Joseph changes that and says the spirit led him up to be with God and was afterwards tempted mm-hmm. of the devil. I don't have a problem with either one of those. Right. Um, it very well could. It, Jesus is getting ready to start his mortal ministry. It's very possible to say before Jesus can start his mortal ministry, he needs to confront this. He needs to, it's, it's, it's almost like the David and Goliath experience, right? You've got this battle that's about to ensue as Jesus starts his ministry, and you've got the two generals coming out to kind of size each other up. Mm-hmm. Um, let, let, let me figure you out, and let's, let's square off and, and, and see how this is going to go. So I don't have a problem with the, with the actual King James translator's version. I I like Joseph's better. It feels better. Makes sense. It yes. makes sense. Yeah. So he goes out there to be with God, and is tempted. And the other thing is, is maybe the Spirit led him out there to do both. Yeah. The Spirit. We don't have to be a dyadic, you know, either or kind of interpretation as we read this. I can see the Spirit saying, "Hey, we're going to take you out there, and you're going to spend time with God, God and Satan's going to show up. Satan's going to yeah. show up, and that's going to accomplish another purpose. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other thing I find fascinating, just before we get into the actual temptations, is there's no one here but Jesus and the devil. And so... I, you want to know how Matthew gets this? <laughs> I, Matthew and Luke. Like, how do you... Where? What's the conversation? Like, and I don't... We haven't mentioned the chosen yet, but I, I really enjoy it. I know not everybody does. I enjoy the the artistic spins on some of yeah. their... Yeah, and that's all it is. And, uh, you know, I've had... I had one student raise my hand and be like, I had no idea Peter had a gambling problem. <laughs> You're like, ah, it's not, ah, it's not in, in here. <laughs> um, but I, I really enjoy it. I feel like they've done a great job with it. Yeah. Um, but one of the things it's caused me to do is to start my own creative process. Like, I wonder, yeah. what would the conversation have looked like? At what point is Jesus having a conversation with Matthew and saying, or is it with all of the disciples? Um, and saying, hey, let me tell you something. I need this in the record. I need this to be out there. So, um, the first two temptations, I, I've had a different spin on it. I used to think that this was kind of a um, casting doubt, like planting doubts. I'm pla- the, the, the adversary starts out, the tempter came to him and said, if thou be the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Um, and the very first word here and in the next temptation as yeah. well is if. Yeah. And I used to always see that that was kind of this idea of, of planting doubts. 
But when I pause and step back, maybe that's true. When, when those words are planted, are used on me, maybe that is a planting doubt because I am potentially a doubter. You're not going to successfully get the Savior to doubt his identity. Yeah. And so I've wondered about that, and I've spent some time this morning thinking about it, and I've, I've started to think about, maybe it's because of the NFL playoffs and, and everything going on. Hey, go Niners. Home field advantage, <laughs> right? It's a big yeah. deal. Yeah. There's always, they say it's worth three points in the NFL. That home field advantage, two totally equal teams, typically home field, home field advantage is going to be worth three points. Um, I've wondered if this word if is like in a, like fishing, you've got this lure and these, and, and depending on the kind of fish you're going for and the time of year, that lure is going to accomplish different things. Um, sometimes it's going to be tempt them to eat, which is which the first temptation is. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, if you're fishing for salmon, it's not a hunger thing for them. They're grouchy. trying to make them mad yeah. and you want them to just try and lash out at you. Yeah. Um, I'm starting to see the word if as more of a lure, like a fishing lure, trying to get me out of an arena of faith and into an arena of proof. Yeah. Prove this. Yeah. Um, Jesus has just spent 40 days with God. Um, he's been fasting. Both Peter, or sorry, both Matthew and Luke point out in the in the wording, when the 40 days finished, they say he was afterward and hunger. And I think Luke is more like when it was all done or at the end of the fast, he was hungry and it's fascinating to me that Jesus's focus while fasting was such that the hunger doesn't come until the end. Yeah. Um, but when the hunger comes, then Satan comes, shows up and says, Hey, turn these rocks into stones. Yeah. Well, there's nothing inherently evil about this because Jehovah spent 40 years doing this for, or at least a type of it for the, for the Israelites. Eating them with manna. Yeah. And in, in a couple of chapters, Jesus is going to do gonna that for 5,000. Yeah. He's going to, he's going to, uh, he didn't turn rocks into bread, but he's going to multiply bread. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing inherently evil about what the devil is asking him to do. And so the, it, it comes down to the motivation. If Jesus does it, why is he doing it? And again, I think that word if is meant to lure the Son of God out of the realm of faith and into a world of evidence and proof. And that's, that's not where God plays. That's not God's home court advantage. And I've thought about, you know, in our day, the number of times uh, individuals that I know who knew the Book of Mormon was true or knew that Joseph Smith was a prophet and then eventually end up losing those testimonies, often it's because they allowed themselves to be lured out of the arena of faith into an arena of evidence and proof and and scientific method type stuff. And, and then they find that they can't prove that Joseph Smith was a prophet or they can't prove that the Book of Mormon is true. And then the doubt sets in and, and, and the questioning, and, and then we find that testimony slipping away. And, and so uh, the key for us is, uh, there's this great line in The Best Two Years. You remember that old, that <laughs> yeah, old, yeah. old movie? Elder, that's not the language they taught me in the MTC. Um, there's this great line in there where he says, I learned a long time ago that when you wrestle with a pig, you both get, get dirty, dirty, but yeah. the pig likes it. And, and I, there's, there's, to a certain extent, there's some there's an amount of truth to that. If we leave the arena and start wrestling in in the adversaries on the adversaries' turf, you're never going to win that battle. The truths of God were never meant to be proven scientifically or with or, or with concrete evidence. Um, there's a and I always forget his name and um, and I've forgotten it again. I, there's a, one of the early principles. In fact, the the principal who's responsible for changing the Brigham Young Academy into the Brigham Young University. Remember his name? 
Come on, pop quiz. It's not, it's not Mazer. Nope, it's not Mazer. Uh, um, uh, it's the one who who actually full time takes Mazer's place. Yeah, I can't remember who's next. Anyway, he leaves. He's he's uh, an archaeologist by training at the University of Michigan. Yeah. And he decides he gets this idea that he's going to go down to South America, and South and Latin America, and he's going to find archaeological evidence. Beach Roberts. Is true. Nope, not Beach Roberts. All right, sorry. Keep going. Um, anyway, he's going to prove it. And he ends up getting a letter after after being down there for several months. He gets a letter from Joseph F. Smith and says, "Come home. This isn't the way. I, this isn't real. The Lord has no intention of proving the Book of Mormon beyond a shadow of a doubt, because it pulls the Book of Mormon out of the arena of faith." And Howard W. Hunter said, "If you destroy faith, you destroy the the foundation of the plan of salvation." So God will never work outside of that arena of faith, and we should we we need to do our best to stay in there. And you see Jesus doing that. Verse 4, he doesn't say anything about bread or stones or anything. He, his first response is, it's written. And he's, you're going to see that in all three of his responses to the devil. It's written. But what he, he, he quotes something that is, it's faith-oriented. Yeah. It's not proof. I'm not trying to prove that I'm the son of God. I'm not really even responding at all to, to your, your counterclaim or you're asking me to prove that I'm the son of God. I'm just telling you that bread's not the most important thing in the world. And right. The scriptures teach us. And, and isn't it so unique that when you were talking, I, that word if, and I, I'm pretty sure it's Elder Talmadge in, in Jesus Christ points this out. He says, this this same little two-letter word is this barb that mm -hmm. he tries to throw in um, on, the, on the cross. Mm -hmm. He says, if thou be the son of God, if he's the king of Israel, if God will even, if God even wants him anymore. He starts all those temptations again, even on the cross, like his one final Hail Mary attempt that goes nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, that the one thing that Jesus is always so faithful to is always the Father. And so he might be trying to poke that button of, if God even wants you, mm. if you really are God's son, show it. Yeah. Because if you don't, then I'm going to say God's not real and God yep. doesn't really want you. And that's the one thing that Jesus is always testifying of the Father in everything. And it's uh, there's a as as we mentioned there's a bunch of ways to break this up. I, I know in uh, 1911 President David o Elder McKay um, talked about the three types of, yeah, of, love that, of temptations, that right? And and uh, but he says this is like a temptation of appetite. Mm -hmm. um, if you want another incredible talk to go back and listen to, it's it's longer. It's uh, it's when Elder Holland was president of of BYU and. Uh, February 1982, he gives a talk called The Inconvenient, Inconvenient Messiah, Messiah yep. which is an incredible talk. And he, he mentions this part, and he has a line in his talk, Elder Holland does, that is so beautiful. He says, Jesus is going to eat again, in, in fact, in a couple of days. But he says, but not this way. And that's the thing that he's saying. I, I love that idea that the temptation is not even eating. It's not this way. Mm -hmm. Not to do it by proof. Not to do it of... Uh, to show you that I'm better than you, not to use my power just for me. And, and Elder Hall then relates that to chastity and to marriage. And he says, not this way. There's a way and, a, and an order for God's law of chastity mm -hmm. to be on the earth today. And I, I think that is so, so incredible. And, and then one other little thought with this is uh, President Packer once said, when facing perdition himself, the Savior used the scriptures. Used the scriptures. And, and I think what a beautiful connection for us when we face temptations. Use the scriptures. Mm -hmm. He didn't have to 
go into anything else, he quotes Deuteronomy. Yep, 6 and 8. Yep, he just goes right back into it. And he says, and the Deuteronomy is the law. Mm-hmm. It's In fact, it's the repetition of the law is what it means. And so the Lord is just saying, I'll just repeat the law back. Mm-hmm. I don't need to go anywhere else. And the second temptation, he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple, and he says, jump off. And he says, and the angels will help you. Um, and uh, in... Uh, President uh, McKay's thing. He said, this is pride and fashion and vanity of the world. He says, those are going into popularity. Yeah. Popularity. And in verse seven, it's written again. Jesus doesn't, doesn't even vary. He's just like scriptures going back to him again. And, um, uh, so I I think it's fascinating in verse six, Satan's going to pull a page. Yes. Satan says it's written. Hey, Mm -hmm. and, and just to, to, he quotes Psalms. Yeah. Psalm 91. Psalms, which and they're at the temple, which is where Psalms would have been yeah. read or sung. He's and he's now going to quote scripture, showing that even the devil will take and and try and manipulate yeah. and use scripture, or we see people using prophetic words to try and you know pulling things out of context. And I love and that idea of leaving that arena of faith of no, you can't twist it to make it any mm-hmm. different. I like that. Yep. Um, so one of the things, another another idea and a way to look at this, these three, so you get the, the power of appetite, and, and that in any human appetite, any mortal appetite, right? Then the power of popularity, super big pull, and not just, we always talk about, you know, teenagers and high school and college, that, that's always um, for different reasons. But then the third temptation, this power of, you know, if you'll bow down and worship me. Because what does Satan try to do to him? He tries to show him. All, all of the kingdoms of the earth, which is, this is the most feeble of all of them. He starts with his best one. Mm-hmm. And, and I think maybe that's a lesson to learn about temptation, is that if you can get through the first temptation, you're probably going to be just fine because he's going to go with his heavy hitter first. He knows Jesus is hungry. So he starts with that. This last one, he says, all, he shows him all the kingdoms of the earth. And he says, I'll give you all these. Who made them all? Yeah. This is the most feeble to me, at least. I'm mm-hmm. thinking that doesn't do anything. He, he's made worlds without number this is they're the already jesus's yes like, this is the word this is he's the not father going has already promised yes yes I, I have this promise however it's so interesting that you and i have the same promise from the father right yeah the, the, the whole oath and covenant of the priesthood if you keep if you follow the words of the prophets who are teaching you to follow jesus and you follow jesus then i'll give you everything that i've given to jesus and i've given everything i have to jesus yeah so we have the same promise of kingdoms, powers, dominions, all of that, and yet we sell ourselves all the time for small, for small K kingdoms, yeah. for our own little pathetic followings. Yeah. Um, one, in, one, one way to tie, another way to tie these in is this idea of instant gratification, yeah. that Jesus is going to, Elder Holland talks about, Jesus is going to eat in a couple of days. Jesus is going to get a group of disciples. And and the pinnacle in the temple where he sets him, it would have been on top where there would have been a ton of people down on the temple. Um, Nobody really knows where it is, but it's probably at that corner where the the priests are going to blow the horns to indicate it's time for the the sacrifices. You would have had a huge courtyard down below where people would have. And if Jesus had stepped off, everyone would have seen it. And you can see Satan saying, you don't need to go and pound the streets of Nazareth and Capernaum and Galilee. Go into these synagogues and try and read and, the scriptures. And, 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 do yeah. one and, and find one at a time. Why not just step off? And, and you'll have all these disciples right now. Everyone will believe you. Um, kingdoms. 
yeah, God's promised you the kingdoms, but I'll give them to you right now. You don't have to spend a lifetime of mortality. You know, you, this draws my attention. This reminds me of the, the, the Tower of Babel where you've got a group of people traveling from the east and um, they set up in the plains and they decide they want to they stop in their journey. They don't, we're done traveling the, the, the road that God wanted us to. So we're going to sit right here and we're going to build the tower and we're going to get to heaven on our own way. And this is Satan saying, I've got another way for you to get everything that God's given you. And in each of these, this idea of instant gratification, why wait? Why do it in Elder Holland's terms? Why do it the right way when the right way takes so long? Um, Elder Scott, one of my favorite Elder Scott quotes is, don't give up what you want most for what you want right now. And that speaks to each one of these. You know, there's no question. There's nothing Jesus wants more than for people to believe him. Yeah. And uh, one of the things, C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors. I love mm-hmm. how he writes. I love how he examines things. And he, he says something that, that I love, and I'll have to paraphrase it. Uh, but he says, a crazy idea is out there that good people don't know anything about badness. Yes. And he said, and this is absurd. He said, it's actually the opposite. Bad people know nothing about badness. He says, that, nothing at all. And, and I have this, like... Driving with my mother, I was probably 14 or 15. There was a young man that I knew who had done a bunch of really bad things and spent some time in correctional facilities and then changed his whole life and was like, I think I'm all in in the gospel now. And and it wasn't that flip, and I'm not trying to make it. He really did make some sincere changes and is still a good, faithful member of the church. And I, I remember saying something along these lines to my mother that I'm like, I bet he'll be a great missionary because of what he's gone through. My mom just like pulled the car over, <laughs> put it in park. She's like, let's talk. And she's like, she's like, what are you trying to say? And I'm like, well, you know, it's, he'll be able to connect to different people. And I'm like trying to explain, like, yeah. at least in my mind, of like, he'll be so good. And my mom's like, Jesus is the best example of everything. He didn't have to taste badness to know what badness was. And it wasn't until years later that C.S. Lewis says this a lot more eloquently than my dear mother did. Mm-hmm. But that idea of... Uh, you don't know the strength of an army by giving up. You know it by fighting against it. Mm-hmm. You don't know the strength of the wind by walking with the wind, but by against it. And then he goes on to say, therefore, if you give in to temptation, you have no idea the power of that temptation five or ten or ten hours later. He says, you don't know anything. Therefore, Jesus knows everything about badness because he never gave in. Yep. He never, like, once turned his back to it. He just continued to face it and plow through it. And and I love that idea of when we feel like we're going through hard things or trials or temptations, the Savior is the perfect example of persevering through all of them Mm -hmm. and and not even getting close to giving into them. And and I, I love that idea of putting through and not giving up to them is how you understand how to overcome temptations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, um, so jump to verse 11 as you finish these, I I've always, I've loved this and, and elder Holland references it in October of 2008, but he says the verse, and then the devil leaveth him and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. And elder Holland, uh, in 2008 said, even the son of God, a God himself had need for heavenly comfort during his sojourn in mortality. And so such ministrations will be to righteous until the end of time. This promise that when we're, when we're face-to-face, when we go toe-to-toe with the adversary and we feel exhausted and we're not sure that we can keep going because that opposing army feels you, you've, you've taken their best and you realize it's more than maybe you anticipated, 
there's this promise that's in verse 11 that says angels will come. And sometimes those angels are on this side of the veil and sometimes they're on the other side of the veil. But angels will come and will, will buoy you up and give you the strength that you need for the next barrage. Um, I think one of the mistakes that sometimes we make with Jesus in the temptations is we read Matthew 4 and we think, oh, verse 10, the devil left and never came back. Um, but I think Mosiah, uh, Mosiah 15 and Alma 7 kind of give a different take on or not a different take, but a, a deeper illustration insight. of, yeah, insight. That's a good word. Uh, about the temptations of, of Jesus and, and what they were really like post verse 10, Matthew 4:10. Um, Mosiah 15 says, and, and thus the flesh becoming subject to the spirit or the son to the father, being one God suffereth temptation and yieldeth not to the temptation, but suffereth himself to be mocked and scourged and cast out and down and disowned by his people. I think giving the idea that the temptation continues throughout the, the, his whole life. Uh, Alma 7, I think, is even more clear um, on this idea that Jesus' mortal experiences and his, his overcoming temptation didn't end. That it's just now an ongoing thing that we're not going to highlight because we've now highlighted it here and there's other things we need to talk about. And therefore, he would know the full strength of yep. anything that you and I are going to face. He knows, ev yeah. he knows everything that Satan has to throw yeah. against you. Um, he shall go forth suffering pains, afflictions, and temptations of every kind. That idea of going forth, I, it, it reminds me of the rest, verse 23 in, in, in Matthew 4, and Jesus went about all of Galilee. He, he, he would go forth. And, and while he's going around Galilee, teaching and preaching and healing, he's suffering pains, afflictions, temptations of every kind. Um and, and his life was a life of temptation. There's uh, the old, it's, I don't know if it's a Chinese proverb or, a, you know, it, I think most of us are familiar with it. The idea that a man's on his journey, he walks past a man on a, uh, on a, on a road and he sees 14 devils around him or whatever the number yeah. is. And he travels a little further and he sees one city that only has three demons. And, and later on he's thinking, and he's like, wow, that must be a really righteous city and a really wicked man. And a wiser man than him says, no, no, it's the opposite. The man is righteous, and it takes that many to tempt him. Try and get him. That city is so wicked that it only takes a few demons to keep it going in the direction the adversary wants it to go. Um, that's Jesus' life. Satan understands if he can topple Christ, he can undo the Father's plan. Yeah. And so I, I think it would be it's much more logical to anticipate the fact that everything that happens in verse 4 is just a snapshot of every day of the Savior's life. That the, the, the adversary, it would be silly to think that the adversary misses even one opportunity to try and trip the Son of God up in either pride or envy or a temper tantrum or, or any of those things. He is going to dog his footsteps every single day. Yeah. I, I Just two little teaching ideas or thoughts that would go with this, I think. Um, the story is told of, uh, of a king who had a castle way at the top of a hill and it was a windy, narrow road and uh, there was a steep cliff on one side and then a huge, like, just you'd fall off on the other side. And uh, so a mountain and then a cliff. And uh, he's interviewing drivers for his carriage. And he's, he asks one of them this. He says, just how close to that cliff do you think you could get the carriage without going over? And the first guy says, ah, I could get six feet. Next guy he's interviewing says, I can get three feet. Another guy says, I could get half of my wheel hanging off. I still wouldn't fall. 
And the fourth guy says, I'd stay as far as, as far as far away as I could. I'd go to the exact opposite side. And the king hires the fourth guy. Yeah. He says, I, I don't care how close you can get. Uh, I, I want you to stay as far away as possible. Um, uh, for a teaching just like a, an object lesson, uh, I was telling you about this, that uh, there's a place in Africa called Victoria Falls. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. It's a, one of the top five biggest waterfalls in the world, right? And you can go look up on, just on Google a bunch of these pictures of people just hanging off the edge of this waterfall at the at the drier season. There's less water flow, and so the the idea of getting pushed off with with uh, um, the flow of the water just isn't very high. And you have all of these people just smiling and hanging off and selfie and off the edge, and the family sitting in the pool right on the edge, and it's you know hundreds of feet is the drop. And just just that idea, like how close would you get? And you look at the example of Jesus. How close does he get? Well, he doesn't. He's the guy who says, no, I, I want the other side. I want mm-hmm. to be as close as I can to the mountain. And I love the, the symbolism behind that. And, and then the rest of chapter 4, when Jesus then goes and calls uh, the fishermen, I, I love that they leave their nets. Mm-hmm. And the nets represent a whole bunch of things. They could represent livelihood and family and all those other things. But I love that nets could also be nets. That in this case, as we've connected and thought about this with temptations, the fishermen to follow Jesus said, I'm leaving my temptations behind Mm -hmm. and I'll follow him because I know he can get me through them. And and I find a lot of comfort and peace in that to know that Jesus can get us, all of us, through our temptations and the things that catch us up in life because he knows exactly how to do it. Well, thanks again for joining us on Take a Second for Come Follow Me. Brother Black and myself want to emphasize that in this episode or any other episode, there's nothing that we've said that is meant to or can in any way be interpreted as the official doctrine or policy or practice of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, Brother Black and myself simply represent two guys that enjoy talking about Scripture and and in our own life experiences as it relates to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and hope that in sharing some of our thoughts and, and insights, but certainly our personal opinions and nothing more, that uh, maybe it might open up the scriptures a little bit t- to you. So thanks again for joining us on Take a Second, and we will see you in our next episode. <laughs>